0: Thank you, Ben. All right, well, you may be wondering, well, uh, did, did, did Ben make a mistake? Is the bulletin wrong? I thought we were supposed to do the shield of faith today. We're going to skip over the shield of faith and hit that next week because the helmet of salvation to me just seemed like the better part to talk about on the day that we observe the Lord's Supper. It just made so much sense. So we're going to look at the helmet of salvation. We'll pick up uh, the shield of faith, if you pardon the pun, next week and look at that. Now, the helmet of salvation, as so I was thinking about it this week, it really protects us in very similar ways as the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, right? The helmet of salvation can protect our minds from being deceived by Satan's lies and false teachings. It is, after all, a helmet, right? It goes on our head. Uh, but it specifically is the helmet of salvation, It deals with our salvation, which like the breastplate of righteousness can guard us against Satan's accusations meant to discourage us, meant to cause us to doubt our relationship with God or our worthiness to be used by Him and for His kingdom. So the helmet of salvation further protects us against those schemes of Satan that the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness protects us from, but just in a little bit of a different way. So we can think of the schemes of Satan that the helmet of salvation is meant to protect us from like this up on the screen. Our deceiver and accuser wants to deceive us about the truth of the gospel and wants us to doubt our salvation. He wants to deceive us specifically about the truth of the gospel and he wants us to doubt, those of us that are Christians, he wants us to doubt our salvation. So I want us to look in this uh, passage, and you can go ahead and turn with me to Ephesians uh, chapter 6, and uh, this is one of the the smallest, shortest parts as far as descriptions of the armor go. It doesn't have a whole lot of words there, um, and and we're going to read it in just a second, but I want us to look closely at each of these words in this very brief description of a vital part of God's armor to understand us the truth about our salvation and our righteousness before God. So let's just read beginning here in uh, verse uh, 13, and we're going to read through uh, verse 16 here. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand therefore with truth around your waist like a belt with righteousness like armor on your chest and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation. We're just going to stop right there. Take the helmet of salvation. So you saw all this lengthy description, right, of, of all these other parts of the armor and then we just got, take, take the helmet of salvation. It doesn't tell us much about what to do with it or where to put it or anything. Because some, some of that's sort of assumed. So let's look at each of these words because when when Scripture says something in few words, that means that each of those words is packed full. All right? So let's think first about the helmet is protection. So let says take the helmet. The helmet is protection. Like Ben explained, wearing a helmet doesn't give you skill, extra skill, doesn't enhance your abilities. It just preserves your life. Wearing a helmet... Doesn't keep you from falling down, does it? Doesn't keep you from having a wreck on your bike. It doesn't keep you from getting hit in the head with a ball or, or having something fall at work, you know, when you're wearing that hard hat. The helmet doesn't keep those things from happening, but it protects your life when they inevitably do happen, right? It's therefore not prevention, but protection. Paul kind of talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says that we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power that's within us may be from God and not from us. He says we are afflicted in every way. We're afflicted, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. So God's armor is there not to protect us From trials and temptations and tragedies, but to protect us in them as we face these things. We may be afflicted, but the breastplate of righteousness keeps us from being crushed. We may be perplexed, but the helmet of salvation keeps us from being despaired. We may be persecuted, but the belt of truth and the sandals of gospel peace, they're there to remind us that we're never abandoned. And we may be struck down but the shield of faith keeps us from being destroyed. The armor is to protect us from attacks when they happen, not to keep them from happening to us, not to pull us out of the battle. Now, as we think about the helmet of salvation, there are two kinds of Roman helmets that that, uh, a soldier might wear. One was made of leather called the gallia, and the other one was made of metal called the Cassus. And both were constructed to preserve and protect the whole head. So they, they both had like a, a, a plate that came down a, a, you know, low over the forehead. Of course, it goes all around the head, has a, a flap at the back to protect the neck, and then it would have these metal plates that would hang down to protect the jaw. Okay, so really, if you were wearing that helmet properly, everything but your eyes, nose, and mouth was completely covered and shielded. And it gave you confidence as you went into battle. It was a vital piece of armor that every soldier needed to wear. You did not go into battle without wearing your helmet. And, and even underneath that helmet would be sponge and leather to provide that cushion so that if you did get hit on the head, it would protect you from that strike. Now, why is it so important to protect your head from injury? For some of us, that's a good question, right? Right? <laughs> Why is it so important to protect your head from injury? Especially if you're in a battle, a life and death scenario. Well, it seems obvious, but let's think about it for a minute. First, the head is where your vital senses are, right? right? Your sight, sound, smell, especially taste, it's vital. Your head is where you receive input. It's where your mind takes in information that you need to know to make a decision, to protect yourself, to defend yourself, to fight. Even in the first century, they understood this. Even in the first century, they knew that the brain was deeply connected to who you are as a person, your mind, your thoughts, your memory, your decision-making. They understood that the head, the brain, was the center for the rest of the body. It told the body what to do. Uh, Paul even uses this analogy when he talks about the church as the body of Christ. And we're all members of the body. We're hands, we're feet, we're mouths, we're all these different parts of the body. But Christ is the head. He's the one that unites us as a whole. He's the one that gives us direction. He's the one that tells us what to do and we function to serve the purpose of the head, Jesus. So God's helmet is meant to protect our heads, our minds. How we receive information, how we perceive and analyze that information, our memories, our decision making. So we can think in two broad ways in which the helmet guards our minds. First, it guards our minds against Satan's lies. It guards our minds against Satan's lies. We've all heard the expression garbage in, garbage out, right? Right? You know, a computer's processing is only as good as its programming, right? It, whatever its input is is going to dictate what its output is. And the same is true for our mind, for our brain. The input that we give it is vital. If we fill our minds full of junk, it's going to negatively affect how we think, how we feel, the decisions that we make, the way we view the world, the way we treat other people, the things that we say are affected by the kinds of things we put into our brain. Just as we discussed with the belt of truth, Satan wants to deceive our minds and thereby seduce our hearts so that we won't love and seek after and know and follow and worship and obey God. He doesn't want us seeking first God's kingdom and righteousness. He doesn't want us meditating on the Word of God day and night. He wants to deceive us and seduce us away from those things. The less of God's Word in your mind, the more room there is for Satan's lies to cause fear and doubt and confusion and compromise. So one way to protect our minds is to control what goes in it. What do we put in there? That means that we have to be intentional and selective about the things we watch on our screens, the books we read, the websites we visit the voices around us that we allow to speak into us, the things that we listen to. Now, am I saying that we can only watch and read and listen to things that are quote-unquote Christian, that have Christian content? Not necessarily. That's not what I'm saying. There's a saying that says you have to separate the wheat from the chaff, right? You have to separate the wheat from the chaff. And listen, we've, we've said this, said this a few weeks ago. All truth is God's truth, right? Whether it's 2 plus 2 is 4... Whether it's the law of gravity or whether it's John 3.16, if it's true, it's of God. Amen? Because Jesus said, I am the truth. So all truth is God's truth no matter where we find it. But, when you're separating that wheat from chaff, when you're doing all this sifting you know, from the things that you're taking in from the world, when you start to realize that there's more chaff there than there is wheat, is that really a good use of your time and resources? Maybe you ought to ditch that and go find something that's got more wheat than chaff. Does that make sense? We've got to be a good steward of this. It takes discernment. It takes wisdom. We have to be careful about what we feed our minds as much as we are about what we feed our bodies. Granted, some of us don't do a very good job of that either. What you put in your car, the kind of fuel that you put in your car, we have to be intentional about what we feed our minds as what we put in our vehicles. Or think about your computer or your phone. You spend money to put virus protection software on there or VPNs on, on your computer to keep digital corruption away from it. How much more should we do the same to keep spiritual corruption out of our minds? We should be just as careful with our minds as we are with our phones and our computers, if not more so. And when we choose not to allow Satan to fill our minds with the filth of this world, sometimes that means you have to change the channel. Sometimes that means you have to turn off the TV. Sometimes that means you have to click away from that link, that website. Sometimes that means you've got to walk away from that friend or coworker who's gossiping or who's complaining or who's telling dirty jokes. Sometimes that means you have to remove yourself from these situations to protect your mind. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, Although we live in the flesh, and listen to this, listen to this language of spiritual warfare that we've read here in Ephesians. He says, "...for although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds." Now, what are the spiritual strongholds that Paul is saying that we're trying to demolish in this battle? He says, "...we demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God." And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul says here, the main battlefield that we are fighting this war in is the battlefield of our minds. It's the arguments. It's the, it's the thoughts. It's the knowledge that Satan is at war with us for. Now, it's not just enough to, to defensively, reactively, it's not just enough to keep the lies of Satan out of our mind. Secondly, We have to fill our minds with God's truth. That's the best way. The best way to keep Satan's lies out of your mind is to fill your mind with God's truth because nature abhors a vacuum, right? Your mind is going to be filled with something. You get to choose what that is. You get to be proactive in deciding what you're going to think about. Paul says in Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence, and if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell. That means think, meditate on these things. That's the kind of thing that we should be filling our minds with. Our whole intellect plays a vital role in our spiritual growth and service. And, of course, the Christian who reads and studies the Bible is less likely to be deceived by Satan's lies. And we're going to talk more about the Bible in a couple of weeks when we talk about the sword of the Spirit. We're going to get specific about Scripture intake. But when we fill our minds with God's truth, you know what it does? It helps us discern truth when we find it in other places. Whether that's science or philosophy or art or the broader culture... When we are studying the truth of God's Word, it helps us detect what is true and false out there in the world. It helps us view the world as it really is. It helps us to see the world as God intended and purposed it to be. It helps us to think rightly and to speak generously and to make wise decisions. But listen, as important as all this is, the helmet of salvation is about so much more than just protecting our minds from Satan's lies in filling it with God's truth. Okay, If you think about it, those things are kind of covered by the belt of truth and by the sword of the Spirit. But it's, after all, the helmet of what? Salvation. So before we dive into that word salvation, I want us to look at another word, a word that is very vital and helps us to think rightly about that salvation. Okay, So first, the helmet is protection. Secondly, the helmet is received. The helmet is received. Now this word in verse 17, when he says take the helmet of salvation, that's a different Greek word than take in verse 13 when he says take up the full armor. And it's different from the word take in verse 16, we'll get next week, when he says take the shield of faith. So when he says take up the full armor and take the shield of faith, that Greek word means to grab, to seize, to take up for yourself, to, to bring to yourself. But here in verse 17, the Greek word he uses for take the helmet means to welcome, to receive, to accept something that's being given to you. See the difference there? We don't take up salvation for ourselves. We don't grasp it or seize it. We can't borrow it from someone else. We can't manufacture it. It is something we receive from our King who gives it to us. Amen? You may remember uh, you know, as it was being read, you might have listened to the Old Testament reading and thought, I've heard this before. Wasn't that an Old Testament reading a few weeks ago? Yes, it was. When we talked about the breastplate of righteousness, we read that same passage. And if you remember there in Isaiah 59, God is depicted as a warrior who is fighting to bring rescue and deliverance for His people. He's fighting to save His people. And it says in verse 17, He put on righteousness as a breastplate, as a body armor, and a helmet of salvation on His head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. He wrapped Himself in zeal as in a cloak. It is by God's righteousness and His salvation that we are secure in our deliverance. It's by His. I love it. In Isaiah, the helmet of salvation is something God does. In Ephesians the helmet of salvation is something God gives. He gives it to us. That means that our salvation isn't really ours. It's His. He earned it. He won it. He did the work for it. He paid the price for it. It's His salvation that He freely gives to us. It is for us that Jesus died on the cross. Where Paul says in Ephesians 2.8, For you are saved by grace. Through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's God's gift. He goes on to say, it's not by works. So you have no room to boast. Salvation is a gift that we receive by faith from a gracious God. It protects us from Satan's discouraging lies, his disparaging accusations. It assures us that no matter what happens, I am saved by and experience victory in Jesus, in who He is and what He has done for me. And so that finally brings me to the third part. The helmet is protection, the helmet is received, and the helmet is salvation. In our salvation, our minds are renewed. How we think is transformed. We receive that helmet of salvation as a free gift from God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, don't hear me saying... And when we talk about the helmet of salvation, we are not saved by head knowledge, right? We understand that. Head knowledge is not enough to save. What I'm saying is that our salvation, secured by Jesus, given to us by God's grace, received by faith, that is what guards our minds just as righteousness guards our hearts. God's righteousness guards our hearts. God's salvation guards and protects our minds when we surround our mind with the knowledge, with the understanding of our salvation, it's like wearing a helmet that protects us in three ways. And each of these three ways is tied to the three dimensions of our salvation. Justification in the past, sanctification in the present, and glorification in the future. So the helmet of salvation, when we put on that helmet of salvation, we have three things. First, we have security over our past. It gives us security. Just as I read in Ephesians 2.8, we are saved by God's grace. We receive that salvation through faith in its past tense. For you are saved, past tense, by grace through faith. See, what Satan loves to do, Satan loves to hold up a mirror in front of us. Satan wants you to focus on yesterday, on your past sins on your past failures and mistakes. He wants to remind you of who you were. He doesn't want you to think about who you are in Christ. He wants you to forget your identity in Jesus. He wants you to focus on the things you've done in the past. But we can be secure in that identity of who we are in Christ. There's security there. If you'll flip with me back or read on the screen just a couple of chapters here, Ephesians chapter 2. I already read a part of this. But Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 2. Just listen. Listen to this. He says, beginning in verse 1, "...and you..." Notice the past tense here. "...and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked, according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedience, talking about our enemy, the devil. He says, "...we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclination of our flesh and thoughts." And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But I love this next word. But. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love that He has for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. So who you were was dead in your trespasses. But when you come, when you meet that but God, when you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and you have that life-changing encounter with God, from that moment on, you're no longer children under wrath. You're no longer walking in the ways of this world. You're no longer dead in your trespasses. He has made you alive with Christ. That's who you are. That's your identity. He also raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. So our past is we've been saved from our sins. Our present is that we are in Christ Jesus right now becoming more like Him. And then He talks about our future. So that in the coming ages, He might display the immeasurable riches of His grace through His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Those are the truths about your salvation that you've got to wrap around your mind. You've got to keep it in your mind. That's what the Lord's Supper table is there to remind us of this. It's one reason why we come together around this table. When you give your lives to Jesus, when you respond to His free gift of salvation, all of your sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. They're atoned for. They're paid for. We're declared righteous before a holy God. You're justified. You're made right with God. You have peace with God. And all of your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven in Christ. You're a new creation. The new has come. The old is gone. That is is the security that we have about our past. These, these, these truths make us secure against Satan's now false accusations against us. So whenever He reminds you of your past, and He reminds you of all that long list of crimes you've committed against God, you remind Him that in Christ Jesus you've been acquitted of all those crimes. Your sins has been commuted. You were declared righteous before God. The helmet of salvation reminds us we have security over our past. Secondly, we have confidence in the present. Salvation is not only about being forgiven of past sins, it's about having power to overcome present sin, to face and deal with temptation today. And in that way, the helmet gives us confidence. It gives us confidence as we face the enemy in battle. Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, Being confident of this that He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So wearing the helmet of salvation makes us confident that absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God. There's nothing that can undo or thwart the work of Christ within you. What God starts, He always finishes. Amen? Now, it may be a slower process than we want. It may feel like that for every foot of ground we advance on, we get backed up two feet. That's part of that sanctification process. But the truth is, if you belong to Jesus, if you've given your heart and life to Him, the Holy Spirit of God indwells you to help you bear the fruit of Christ's likeness, to equip you... with gifts to be able to serve the church of God and carry on His mission. He strengthens us to stand firm and resist Satan. Yes, He convicts us of sin when we sin, and He transforms us more and more every day into the image of Christ. That's the Spirit's work in us. And that's why Paul says there at the end of that passage in Ephesians 2 at verse 10, he says, "...for you are God's workmanship." You're God's workmanship. You're a work in progress. He's still working on me, as the song says, right? He's not finished with us yet. Salvation gives us security, knowing that we are saved from the penalty for sin. That is eternal death and separation from God in hell. When you give your life to Christ, when you trust in Him, you are saved from that penalty, past tense. There's security in that. But salvation also gives us confidence that right now, in our daily walk, we can overcome the power of sin. It has no power over us that we don't give it. And if there's a sin that has power over you, you're giving it that power. Because Jesus has given you a way out of those temptations. But third, when we have that helmet of salvation, we also have hope for our future. We have hope for the future. Now, it's interesting. There's only one other place in all the New Testament that this word for helmet is used. Only one other place this Greek word is found in all the New Testament. And I, always, I think that's a profound thing. Whenever you see that there's a word used once or only twice or a few times, then it's like, okay, that's, a, that's, a, that's not a common word. It's being used for a purpose. So if we look at 1 Thessalonians 5 8, this was part of our New Testament reading. Paul is writing about the day of the Lord. He's talking about the return of Jesus at the end of time. And he says, "...but since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love." So that's another phrase Paul's using to mean the spiritual armor of God. Let us put on this armor, and look what he specifically points out, "...and a helmet of the hope of salvation." The helmet of the hope of salvation ultimately, remember Paul's writing this in the context of the return of Christ, so ultimately the helmet of salvation gives us hope that when Jesus comes back He's going to make all things new including you and me. And we will be saved from the very presence of sin. We'll be given eternal glorified bodies that won't be touched by sin or its consequences and we'll get to live forever together with Him in the new heaven and the new earth. We'll be whole. We'll be sinless in the eternal presence of God our Savior. We have been saved from sin's penalty. We are being saved from its power. And someday we will be saved from its very presence. And that's what Paul was pointing to back in Philippians 1 6. The completion of the work that God has started in you won't happen until the day of Christ Jesus. That's when that work of salvation is fully done, is when we go to meet the Lord and spend eternity with Him. And on that day, on that day, we get to take off the helmet of salvation. We get to take off the helmet of salvation on that day and replace it with the crown of righteousness. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 8, "...there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge... Just as He gave us that helmet of salvation, He will give us that crown of righteousness on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who love His appearing. As God's people, we are to put on the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. To resist Satan's schemes, we need to be assured of our salvation. We need to spend time in God's Word every day to remind us of our identity, who we are in Christ. We need to worship with God's people every week. We need to come to this Lord's table to remember the salvation that Jesus Christ has given to us. You did nothing to earn it. That means you can do nothing to lose it. You can do nothing to invalidate it. Because it's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus Christ has done. Our hope is in Him. So we need to reject Satan's accusations. We need to resist his deceiving lies. And we can respond with security, with confidence, and with hope. We can say, you know what? I have been saved from sin's penalty because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I am being saved from sin's power by the indwelling Holy Spirit who's working on me today and I will be saved from sin's very presence when Jesus Christ returns again. It's all about the work of God. So put on the helmet of salvation and don't let Satan play with your head. Amen. Keep him out. Now that's another reason that Jesus gave us, again, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. What did Jesus say? When we observe this, we do it. It says right there on the front of that table, in remembrance of Him. He gave us this as a way to help us remember God knows how forgetful we are. He knows we need help. We need to constantly be reminded against Satan's lies of who we are in Jesus, what He has done for us, the confidence, the security, the hope that we have in Him. But listen, just as Satan wants to deceive those of us who are saved, Satan wants to deceive those of us that are Christians. He wants us to forget who we are in Christ. He wants us to be despairing over the future, not hopeful. He wants us fixated on the past. He wants us to doubt our salvation. He wants to deceive us about the Gospel. As true as that is, even more so, Satan wants to deceive the lost into believing they're good enough. They're good enough. I'm a good person. I've not murdered anybody. I do what I say. I keep my promises. I'm a good person. I volunteer. I help other people. I'm a good person. I believe in God. That is a deadly lie with eternal consequences. That is just as much being deceived about the truth of the gospel. Satan wants to keep you away from faith in Jesus Christ. But let me tell you this. If you've never come to a point in your life where you have felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit over your sin, and you've been broken over the fact that you have sinned against a holy God, and if you've never turned from that sin in confession and repentance and trusted in Jesus Christ and His atoning work on the cross, not on what you can do, but on what Jesus did, guess what? You're not saved. You don't have that helmet of salvation. Again, you can't make the helmet. You can't borrow the helmet. You can't take the helmet up for yourself. You can only receive the helmet of salvation from Jesus. Have you done that? Don't come to this table if you've not done that. You can't partake of the body and blood of Jesus, the symbolism of that sacrificial death to secure your salvation if you've not received that salvation. If you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus. So as we sing in just a moment, I want to invite you today to come. Jesus is standing here ready to give you this helmet of salvation. He wants to place it upon your head. He wants to put that breastplate of righteousness upon your heart. He wants to put His truth around your waist and the gospel of peace on your feet if you let Him. Will you come today in faith and trust, give your heart to Jesus and be saved? I invite you to do that. Maybe you've done that before, but you've never made it public. You've never professed that. You've never been baptized. I invite you to come today and come as a candidate for baptism. We're going to have one in a couple of weeks. we would love to include you in that, to publicly profess to others that you know that you belong to Jesus. Maybe God's calling you, do not with this church family, you're already a baptized Christian, you're already living for Jesus, and you, you want to follow Him and serve Him here, you can come. But maybe just as a Christian, maybe you have not been filling your mind with God's truth as you should. Maybe you've allowed Satan's lies to work into your mind. And you just need to come and repent of that and just say, God, fill my mind with your truth. Guard my mind from Satan's lies. I've been hung up on my past. I've not been serving you because I just keep focusing on who I used to be. Help me to turn my back on that and focus on who I am in Jesus. Whatever God is speaking to you, before we come to this table, let's come to this altar. Let's deal with the Lord and know that we are standing in right relationship with Him. Would you stand together with me and pray, Father? We are so grateful for Your grace and Your mercy and that, Jesus, You willingly went to the cross. You bore our sin and shame. You died the death that we deserve to purchase our salvation. Father, if there's anyone here today that does not know You, they've not trusted in Jesus, I pray, God, whatever pride that may keep them from coming forward, God, that You would just... Banish that and help them to step out and to put their trust in You. Or to come and say, I belong to Jesus, but I've never made it public. I want to be baptized. Or do not with this church. God, whatever You're laying on our hearts, may we be obedient to You so we can come to this table and truly experience that communion with You together with the body of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. me mm-hmm. Be seated. Truly, the Lord is our salvation. He has fought the battle, He has won the victory for us, and we can stand in confidence knowing that we belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus, on the night that He was betrayed, the day before, He hung upon that cross and shed His sinless blood to cover over our sins. They were celebrating the Passover meal together. And Matthew's Gospel tells us that as they were eating, Jesus took bread, He blessed it, He broke it, He gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat this, This is my body. As we receive this bread, let us do it in remembrance that in the person of Jesus Christ, God came to live among us as one of us. Emmanuel, God with us. He experienced (laughs) temptation and overcame it for us. He experienced sorrow and joy. He experienced that night in the Garden of Gethsemane as he looked at that cup of wrath and didn't want to drink from it. But he submitted to the Father's will anyway. And in his flesh, 100% man, hundred percent God. Jesus suffered the wrath that we deserve. He suffered stripes so that by His wounds we may be healed. He died upon that cross for you and for me. Let us pray. Father, as we distribute this bread, as we take it and hold it in our hands, as we prepare to eat it in a moment, help us to reflect on the very real truth You came. You lived among us. You died as one of us. You bore in your body our sin and shame that we might be declared righteous. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.